Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known fact of the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guests today. They are four incredible authors who wrote truly inspiring stories of real people. And we talked in Bryan Park in front of a live audience in June. And I'm so thrilled to share these authors with you. Everyone, welcome to Brian Park. I am so, so thrilled to be here today with this absolutely stunning panel of authors. I cannot wait for you to hear sort of the process and the story behind the books that they wrote. And we're going to get really into um, why this story, why it had to be told, and why it needed to be told specifically by these brilliant authors. So I want to welcome today a panel that is being called Truly Inspiring because these stories truly are. Welcome Zane Asher, author of Where the Children Take Us. Welcome Catherine Gregorio, the double life of Catherine Clark author. Welcome to Karen Brooks Hopkins. Her book, Bam, and Then It Hit Me, is what we'll be talking about with her today. And Tim McLaughlin, author of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. I would love it if once we get started, uh, you can sort of begin with maybe um, what we call an elevator pitch about what your book is about. And I'm so thrilled each of you will read a little bit of the book so that people who haven't read it yet will have a chance to um, hear the the tone and the, the specific way you chose to write your prose. Um, Catherine, why don't we start with, um, with you and your elevator pitch of... Um, the Double Life of Catherine Clark. Great, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Catherine Gregorio, and The Double Life of Catherine Clark is a true Cold War adventure story that explores a time in my great aunt, Catherine Clark's life, when she was a stringer as a foreign correspondent behind the Iron Curtain, and she saw something that no one else saw in her cohort of foreign correspondents that caused her to pursue a story with a man who by all definitions was her enemy. He was a very prominent communist who became a dissident. And as she pursued the story, she became friends with him and ended up smuggling his papers out under the eyes of the secret police in order to bring his ideas to the West and then pursued them uh, into books while he was put in prison back in his homeland of Yugoslavia. Um, because what he had to say was really important and it was the first time that someone very senior in the communist um, hierarchy had said that communism was a farce. And the books that he produced went on to sell three million copies in the West. Um, And so it's part biography, 
part thriller and was personally just a, a wonderful way for me to explore um, a family story that I knew just a little bit about as I was growing up um, and uncovered um, a part of history that had really been untold. Tim. Um, hi. Thanks for coming out, everybody, uh, particularly uh, in light of the sort of threatening weather. Um, my book is called Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and it's a collection uh, that's made up of half essays and half short stories. And I think the best way to introduce it is probably, um, I'm going to read the introduction, which is super short. But I think it explains the book about as well as I'm capable of. At the end of the day, I tell ghost stories. Whether I'm writing mysteries or humor, fiction or essays, I write about ghosts. People left so far behind that they move virtually unseen through today's city. They're wandering exiles living in an endless drift expedition. This is not nostalgia. Nostalgia is different. Nostalgia rolls in from the suburbs, vaguely sad, increasingly misremembering, and with a whiff of superiority for having fled to a better life. Nostalgia is the line outside Villabate Alba Bakery on 18th Avenue in Bensonhurst during Christmas week. Cars double parked for two blocks with New Jersey and Pennsylvania plates. Nostalgia is the crowd at the Danish Athletic Club for the St. Lucia celebration. Ghost stories are the club the rest of the year. Ghost stories are those of people living in $4 million brownstones with no mortgage because the house has been in the same family for generations. But the owners have to clip coupons for two-for-one Subway sandwich specials. They have tenants as old as they are, or older, sometimes also inherited, and paying less in rent than an indoor parking space in the neighborhood commands. They could sell and live like kings, these ghosts, but where? Why are they tethered to a particular place? What happened to them here that compels endurance? Bound by a feeling of helplessness and rage, they move through a world that on a good day has abandoned them, and on a bad day conspires to destroy them. I cannot take a single step in this city without feeling the weight of ghosts, the dead ones and the ones that walk with us. Yet no place I know is more scornful of the past, less loyal and sentimental. It's all swift, vicious movement, march or die, commerce and art. And here's the funny part. The ghosts wouldn't have it any other way. It's in the DNA of this love-hate relationship. To live here, you are required to attend your own funeral, repeatedly. These pieces were written over a period of 20 years and much has changed during that time in this march or die town and its environs. Rather than update them, I prefer to let the older ones stand as time capsules. As I gradually became aware that the stories and essays were taking on a narrative arc of their own, I started writing new ones to fill in the gaps. It's not all about the ghosts, I tell myself sometimes. A few of these essays are fairly lighthearted, and after all, my more recent writing is increasingly personal. Then I remember the underrated gambling movie Rounders and its protagonist, Matt Damon's Mike McDermott. Early on, he says, listen, here's the thing. If you can't spot the sucker in your first half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. <laughs> it occurs to me now that if you're a guy who tells ghost stories and you can't identify the ghost on your first pass, then you are the ghost. Boo. <laughs> Zane, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Alana. Um, my name is Zane Asher, and my book is called Where the Children... I guess you can see it here. Where <laughs> the Children Take Us. Um, and uh, one of the questions I've been asked the most throughout my entire life is, how did she do it? How did your mother, despite being 
a widowed immigrant from Africa living in London, despite living in a neighborhood beset by poverty and crime, despite having very little money, how on earth did she manage to go through a staggering tragedy and still manage to raise you, a CNN anchor, uh, your brother, an Oscar-nominated actor, your sister, a doctor, and your eldest brother, a uh, successful entrepreneur? How did she do that? And so this book is really um, a celebration of my mother and um, hopefully an inspirational story for not just parents, but anyone who has gone through something really difficult and challenging in their lives and uh, really hoped and prayed to come out the other side uh, victorious, beating the odds. So yeah, that's my book. <laughs> Karen. So, okay, let me just say that I know my book looks long, <laughs> but it has 300 pictures in it. So it's really not as foreboding as it may seem to be sitting up here. Um, this is a story about my life and career as uh, the president of the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I worked there for 36 years and served as president for the last 16. During that time, we constructed three buildings, ex dramatically expanded programming in all disciplines, built a significant endowment, and most of all, helped to change the face of Brooklyn from a Manhattan wannabe to now, let's face it, the coolest neighborhood on the planet. <laughs> we all know it. The story of BAM begins in 1861 when it is built in Brooklyn Heights. Mary Todd Lincoln, among other uh, great luminaries, is in the house uh, during the opening celebrations. And from that point on, the story begins. Uh, BAM today is the oldest performing arts center in the United States. And there are so many amazing historical moments, such as when the great Rudolf Noriez defected from the Soviet Union, his first performances were on stage at BAM. Martha Graham danced her last performance as a dancer on the stage at BAM. The original BAM burned to the ground in 1903, and the one that we all know and love today on Lafayette Avenue and Fort Greene opened its doors in 1908. This book, though, is not a history of BAM. We already have another book um, that is a history of BAM. What this book is is a memoir of what happened during my 36 years, um, you know, essentially running the place. Today there are four, bil there are four buildings, and BAM continues to really be in the heart of its community um, in terms of its multidisciplinary program and the way that it serves over 750,000 visitors a year. Essentially, there are three strands of content in the book. Artists and celebrities, so you get to hear all the dish on Paul Simon, Princess Diana, Ingmar Bergman, Pina Bausch, the Market Theater of South Africa, and many, many others. So if you like celebrity stories, this is your book. The next uh, piece is all about fundraising and leadership and how we kind of took what was then an outpost. Um, we always told the story that people would say, where is such and such an event playing? And they'd say, well, it's at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and then it'll be in London. And then the person would say, okay, I'll see it in London. It was a real struggle in those days to get people over that bridge. 
So a lot of our fundraising stories and on the wild schemes that we created to get money to support the place and bring an audience is the next part of the book. And then the last uh, strand of content is what does it mean to build an economically successful creative community powered by the arts? Too often, and we know this as New Yorkers, our field does not get the respect and investment it deserves. The arts inspire love of learning, bring together diverse groups of people from different backgrounds, house our greatest treasures in our most iconic buildings, generate tourism and discovery of new places. And after all, the only thing that endures from generation to generation to generation is art. And so I hope you will find all of those threads uh, when you read my book. Thank you. She didn't even mention Bianca Jagger oh in her God. list of celebs who, who hosted a gala for BAM at some point. Um, thank you all. I feel like that was such a wonderful way to kind of start having an inroad to, to the book. I think maybe now, maybe I'll start with Zane. Um, will you read a passage from your book and then we'll talk a little bit about the genesis of why now, why... You described beautifully sort of who you wanted to honor with the book, and then maybe a little why now? Was okay. this the time? Okay, I'll start by uh, reading. And I know I've said this before, but eat the mic. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm going to read a little bit from chapter one, and um, you know, I'm going to try and get through it because chapter one is really about the worst day in my family's life, you know? Um, okay. <sighs> Sorry. Okay. Um, I can't remember most of what happened that Sunday in September. I couldn't tell you what the gospel reading was at mass that morning, or whether Auntie Fatu came over to braid my hair in cornrows, or which culture club song was playing on the beat up radio in my bedroom. None of that really matters anyway. Everything about that Sunday was so routine, so plain, so unremarkable, until the phone rang. My mother had been waiting for that sound since morning, never straying too far from the living room, just in case she missed it. Everything she'd done that day, frying plantains, leafing through the Argos catalog, ironing my brother's school shirts, was all a plot to fill time. She kept telling us to turn down the television so nothing would drown out the sound. She was anxious, fidgety, we all were. When the phone finally rang at 6.30 p.m., she gave herself permission at last to exhale. Arinze, she said. It was supposed to be my dad. He was supposed to explain why he still wasn't home, to apologize for the eight hours of worry he'd put her through. But the voice on the other end of the line wasn't his. This voice was nervous. It hesitated and stuttered. It took a deep breath and mumbled two sentences that brought one chapter of our lives to a swift and sudden end and started an entirely new book. Your husband and your son have been involved in a car crash. One of them is dead, and we don't know which one, the voice said. It's human nature to fear the worst when we don't hear from a loved one for several hours. But usually, the worst doesn't happen. Usually, everyone ends up all right. This was not one of those times. My father and 11-year-old brother were 4,000 miles away on a father-son road trip, long-awaited quality time together after a busy summer. My brother gazing out the car window, wide-eyed and inquisitive. 
my father pointing and explaining. The sprawling textile markets, the street hawkers selling opera, the overcrowded yellow buses with conductors riding on the outside. All distant flashes of rich culture, a universe away from the corner shops, brew pubs and lollipop men that littered our neighborhood in South London. Somewhere along that six hour stretch of bumpy highway between my father's home state of Enugu and the buzzing West African metropolis of Lagos, the man driving my father and brother swerved into the opposite lane to cut traffic. As their car veered round a bend, it was crushed by a speeding tractor trailer. Everyone in the car was killed instantly, apart from one person in the back seat where my father and brother were sitting. Our relatives in Nigeria were initially told that both of them had died, then hours later that one had survived, then again that both were killed. They were still in the middle of arguing, trying to work out the facts, when someone made that dreaded call to my mother. I was five, my eldest brother was 14, and my mother was four months pregnant at the time. I kept thinking about Sophie's choice when I read that passage, imagining your mother on the airplane going to Nigeria, which is what happened next, leaving you guys at home and not knowing till she got there and walks into the hospital room which of her beloveds had made it and which one hadn't, and, and just thinking of the excruciating nature of that flight. But can you please tell this audience, as we know, it's your brother who survived. You've just described him. Which brother was it, and how do we all know him as a household name today? Yeah, so um, my dad was taking my brother um, on a road trip to Nigeria, and it was partly because my brother was getting bullied in school. I mean, you know, we went to a school where, you know, he was one of the only African children in his school, and so the kids were not very nice. And so my dad thought, gosh, you know, if I can take my son on a road trip to Nigeria, um, I can teach him about his heritage and culture. Um, maybe he'll have the courage to stand up to the bullies. Um, and so, you know, obviously my dad never came back from that trip, but um, my brother survived it. He was 11 years old at the time and um, he ended up becoming an actor and uh, he was nominated for starring in the movie 12 Years a Slave, um, which he starred in and yeah. Chiwetel Elfjord. Yeah. It's just really incredible. Um, I'm going to have everyone read because I want to make sure we get to hear bits of everyone's story before we then get deep into the why and the now of all of your books. So, um, Catherine, do you want to read a passage? Sure, yes. So my passage is going to be my prologue, which actually is a scene that happens about two-thirds of the way through the book. Um, and it's set in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, November 1956. So close your eyes and travel with me across an ocean and back in time. As the footsteps on the cobblestones behind her grew louder, she willed herself not to turn around. Her only chance now was to blend in, to make everyone believe she was a local. She knew no one from Belgrade would dare look back to see if the secret police were in pursuit. She wanted to run, but she forced herself to slow her gait, shivering a little despite her sensible wool coat. She tried to count to three between each footstep the way her mother had taught her so many years before in preparation for her wedding. Luckily, the steady drizzle that had been falling since morning had stopped. She was grateful it was still a few degrees above freezing, so the wet street had yet to turn to ice. But she knew that wouldn't last. The weather forecast for this cold afternoon called for a blizzard. As if to confirm her thoughts, a strong gale of wind whipped up and stung her cheeks like a sharp, 
frosty wasp. No matter. Biting her lips together, with her head forward, she tilted her face down and leaned into it. The angle also allowing her to avoid eye contact that might attract suspicion. A minute later, she walked by the window of a brightly lit dress shop, stopped and lifted her gaze, pretending to examine the boldly colored frocks on display. She knew enough from her years living in a communist country that inside there would be nothing for sale like what was advertised in the window. The same was true at every store like this. Only when there was a line wrapping outside of the shop and around the corner like a trail of breadcrumbs was there anything to buy inside. But shopping wasn't her aim. She studied the reflection of the pedestrians behind her. A handful of men and women carrying umbrellas under their arms and shopping bags in their hands shuffled by. The footsteps, footsteps were closing in on her. Clenching her jaw and forming tight fists with her gloved hands, she readied herself. A moment later, a fat, middle-aged man with an ushanka, the traditional bushy fur hat with ear flaps for warmth imported from the Soviet Union, and a long, dark coat that strained against his girth appeared in the glass. Quickly, he was upon her, but he passed where she stood, hurrying on his way, the footsteps echoing loud in his wake. She let out a shallow exhale, nothing out of the ordinary, she thought. Still, she knew she wasn't safe. Not yet. She squeezed the handbag she was carrying over her right shoulder tightly against her ribs, patting it to make sure everything was still inside. Grabbing the collar of her coat and drawing it in closer, she began to walk again, allowing herself to move faster now along the remaining two blocks to her hotel. As she hurried, she thought about what was next. She needed to get out of the country. She had to deliver on her promise. Everything depended on it. So it's not historical fiction because this is your real aunt who really smuggled out these papers that went on to become how many how many copies of his book did ended up selling? So she smuggled out two books, but right. the new class is the one that sold over three million copies. Right. Incredible. And really changed the way people outside of that country understood what was going on inside. And so I think of the bravery of that woman. It's just incredible. And this is in 1950... 1956. Right. So tell me how, like, what did you know about this, like, mythological almost figure in your family that brought you to this story specifically and then made you decide to, like, deep dive into it beyond, like, yeah, I had this aunt who was, like, a hero in some way. So most of her story actually wasn't known. My mom growing up, so I'm actually named after her and I always paid attention to stories. And my mom was a wonderful storyteller and she's also the family archivist. And so I knew very vaguely that my great aunt had done a variety of things, this being one of them. And there was, there was always a story about her putting papers in her bra that just made me pay attention. Um, but it was laugh. It, yes, if exactly, you're a kid. Exactly. Um, and um, but it wasn't until later. And I think it was a very serendipitous moment. I was in the basement of Georgetown University, from which I have no degrees, but I was home from a master's degree at the London School of Economics doing research for my thesis. And I ran into a friend from college. I was doing the microfiche um, researching that I don't even know if it exists anymore. And I turned to talk to my friend and out of the corner of my eye saw a plaque with my great uncle and great aunt's name on it and got curious and went digging. And they had left over four boxes of files from this time with letters and reports and correspondence. 
um, between her and the dissident and her and all the publishers. And as I just dug in, it just was a story that I felt I had to tell. That's incredible. So you just happened to be there and that plaque just happened to be on the wall. I think That's it was meant crazy. to be. I yeah. know. I That's know. That's incredible. Um, Tim, I think about, I live in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, and I think about sort of so many of the people in my neighborhood who live in the houses exactly. They have the social <laughs> club next door and sure. live in the buildings that are being bought next door by yuppies from Manhattan for four or five million dollars at this point. Um, it's an incredible thing to observe how these two communities live together in like 12, 12 block radius, mm -hmm. um, as you know so well. I want to ask you something before you read. You are a peace officer. I, I'm retired, but I was, yeah. Okay, so first of all, it's the most beautiful name of a profession I've ever sure. heard, a peace officer. But I wonder if my fantasy of what a peace officer and what a peace officer actually is um, in any way collides. So first, can you describe what that profession is, was, because it's so... Um, woven through your stories, the ones that are, that are your personal stories. So what is it and how does one get to be a peace officer? Um, one drops out of college. Um, you know, one chases one's dream of uh, driving unlicensed car service off the books. Um, it's, it's important to chase your dreams. Uh, it, it happened... It's like you read my diary. See? <laughs> um, it, it, it happens... It happened to me because I was a white, Irish, blue-collar, working-class kid that did not have tremendous academic ambition, and yet I had interests that were, uh, they didn't sustain me through, through college, but um, I... I had grand bohemian dreams, as we all do when we're younger, and then those run up against rent. And, uh, you know, so I followed in the tradition of my family, which was um, to go into civil service, which is what you did if you were Irish and blue collar and you were not inclined toward a life of crime. So uh, I became, I went to work for the Transit Authority, which is what my father and most of my uncles had done. And the rest of my father's family that was not in the transit authority had all become cops. And so I took uh, a huge number of, of civil service exams. I took exams for jobs that I didn't know what the jobs were. But I took every uh, examination that came out. And what the really nice thing about that is about two years after you do it, you suddenly start getting all of these job offers. So that was kind of neat. And as far as I was concerned, court officer was civil service lotto because you were a peace officer, which is almost a police officer. The, the, the distinction between peace officer and police officer is actually ridiculously small. The distinction is that um, a police officer can essentially arrest anyone for anything if someone tells them what they did, you know, if someone says this guy committed a crime. Whereas a peace officer can only do that with a felony. With something smaller, he has to actually see it. So there, there's your only distinction between a police officer and a peace officer in New York. Um, but for me, getting the job as court officer meant I wore the uniform, I had the badge, I had the gun, and yet I worked indoors 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. I, w I wasn't chasing someone down a dark alley for a living. 
you know, I was telling criminal defendants where the bathrooms were and to put the newspaper away. So, you know, I mean, I, I think, like to think I preserved democracy for a few years. Well, we thank you as citizens who believe in democracy. Um, do you want to read from the book for us? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll pick something super short. This, uh, this is called Indigenous. When I found my mother dead on the kitchen floor, the first thing I thought was how different everything would be if I hadn't gone back to get my handcuffs. Selfish, I know, but I hadn't had a roofing job in a month and I'd broken another tooth last Thursday. I was hurting all the time and I really missed having a dental plan. She was halfway under the kitchen table on her back. It seemed like she was looking out the window. She must have been up and about for a while when it happened. She had today's post open on the table and two cigarette butts lay in the ashtray, smoked so thoroughly to the filters that they looked like earplugs. One piece of dark toast remained on her plate and I could smell the whiskey and the dregs of her tea. I'd had a rough night and slept late. If there had been anything to hear, I hadn't heard it. I hoped that there wasn't. The day's mail was next to her plate, and I recognized the green ink on the return address of the windowpane envelope on top. I took her social security check and folded it and put it in my pocket. Julio would open the liquor store at noon and cash it, as he always did. I looked around the room. I was born here 40 years ago. I grew up here, then moved out and got a job and got married and got fired and got divorced and moved back. It seemed like there should be more to it than that, but really, there wasn't. The small white octagonal tiles were identical to those in the bar at the Knights of Columbus on Van Brunt Street, where my parents held my christening party and where I'd had my wedding reception. The Knights folded about six months ago, un unable to keep up with the mounting rents in Red Hook. I would have to move now too. The lease was in my mother's name and ours was the last rent-controlled apartment in the building. The landlord had already gotten most of the blacks and Puerto Ricans and old Irish out and was stocking the place with yuppies. Manhattan people, we called them, or just the new people. I left then, went down three flights and hit the street and walked. In the summer of 1997, I graduated from the police academy. That night, about a dozen of us wound up in Coney Island, pretty drunk by two in the morning. It seemed funny. I handcuffed the ride operator to his ticket booth and we hijacked the Wonder Wheel. We let the pretty girls ride free and stopped and started it when we felt like it and someone brought more beer. When they caught us, there was a lot of press. Somebody had to swing. The rest of my friends almost had their 20 in now, and they were all living upstate or in Jersey. I'd gone back for my handcuffs. I stepped into the new place where the nights had been. It was unbearably bright. They'd just opened, and the only people in there were the bartender and a couple having coffee at the bar. The room was newly painted and scrubbed clean and smelled of polyurethane instead of beer. I ordered a drink and remembered standing outside with the old-timers a few years ago, laughing at the city road crew as they painted a double yellow line down the street for the first time. Where you from, the bartender asked. He was young and fit. He looked intelligent. He looked like he had sex with attractive women. He looked like he had a future. There must be a word, I thought, a way to tell him. I was angry suddenly. I wanted to smack him just for talking to me just for being in this place. 
I wanted to smack him for the plants in the window and the missing jukebox and the flat screen television and the $6 beer. And I felt ashamed. My mother was dead on the floor and I was back in a bar and now I'd spent my last $6. My tongue kept cutting itself on the new broken tooth and it hurt and I felt like I couldn't talk. You okay, dude, he asked. Standing still, I said. What? Not moving. I felt dizzy and the words weren't coming out right. I was starting to cry. I wiped my eyes and saw the thick black lines of grime under my fingernails and looked away down at the polished wood floor where the white octagonal tiles had been. I thought about the blacks and the Puerto Ricans and the Italians and the fights and the parties and how when we were kids we would play along the pier on the corner at Erie Basin, pretending we were Indians watching the first white men arrive. I was sobbing now and my head hurt. A couple with coffee was looking at me and I didn't care. From here I screamed, I'm from here. I love that we have Brooklyn represented in all of these different ways. Um, <laughs> it's pretty incredible. So would you read to us from yours? And then I have some questions for all of you. So get ready for the game show part of this panel. Great. I'm, I'm going to stand up if that's OK. Of course. Thank you. I think I'm going to stand up. Can I just? Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to read from the uh, beginning of the book. I am a person of singular focus and resolve. For much of my adult life, I achieved what I call the rule of one. One son, one job, one boss, one house, one brother, one ex-husband, and one 22-year <laughs> relationship. My professional life has always been all-consuming so I have tried, out of necessity, to keep everything else as simple as possible. For 36 years, from 1979 to 2015, almost without fail, I woke up every morning at 6 a.m. and rode five miles on my exercise bike. While riding, I read a handful of newspapers and magazines, scanning the stories for leads and inspiration, making notes in the margins, which always came out wavy and incoherent because of the bike, necessitating, necessitating translation by one of my loyal assistants. After the workout, I showered, got dressed, and performed my daily ritual of looking in the mirror, clenching my fists, and saying out loud, Good morning, Karen. Today you will raise a million dollars. Then I went to work, moving methodically through countless meetings and events, which often stretched late into the night, never losing sight of the overall objective. At BAM, we were on a path to glory, and no one was going to stop us. As I declared on many occasions during my 36-year run to our board, staff, artists, audience, and anyone else who crossed my path, BAM was not a job, but a crusade. It was my mantra. I adhered to the definition of crusade as, quote, an energetic and organized campaign concerning a social, political, or religious issue. For me, BAM was all three. My story can be summed up as follows. At the age of 29, I interviewed for a position in the development office at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I met Harvey Lichtenstein, 
then BAM's president and executive producer for the first time in the dark, then decaying opera house at 30 Lafayette Avenue. It was there that he shared his expansive vision for BAM, recounting how far the institution had come since he had taken over in 1967 and reflecting on what it could one day be. As I sat across from him, listening to him talk, he fixed his penetrating eyes upon my face, silently trying to determine if I had what it took to join the team. Then he leaned forward and said in his distinct and gravelly voice, look, Karen, I need someone who can work like hell. Without missing a beat, I leaned forward and replied, I get it, I'm your gal. You're hired, he forcefully responded. We stood and shook hands. That was the moment that everything converged. BAM became my home, my universe, everything. I worked there tirelessly for nearly four decades, eventually ascending to the presidency, helping to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for the institution while it became one of the most significant cultural centers in the world. Thank you. It's so rare that I get to thank in person someone who has been responsible for more art experiences in every lane, film and theater and dance and song. And only recently did my son get yelled at for skateboarding on the BAM steps, which as you know, <laughs> is also one of the best places to skateboard if you have a 15-year-old son. And your security is very kind in the way that they tell them to get the hell off of those BAM steps. So thank you for that as well. Um, I, want to, uh, I want to just go through quickly and ask you guys, because I think so many of us here aspired, had someone or something they read in their youth that really opened up the world of literature and books to them. Um, so I guess I'd love to just start with you, Catherine. What was your favorite book as a kid? Oh, favorite book, such a tough one to answer. Um, I think the way I usually answer this question is my first memories, which was actually poetry. My mom um, used to read tons of stories to us, um, but the ones that I still can recite to this day are A.A. Milne's poetry, especially in the book We Are Six now. Um, and there was just a rhythm to the words and it was just, it brought it to life. And I think for me, um, you know, I read so much as a child because I had that inspiration and that's really what prompted me to write my own book. All right, let's just go down the line. Tim? Um, as, as a kid, I would say, uh, as a teenage boy, I read a lot of science fiction and I think that's what most, you know, teenage boys do. And, you know, uh, space opera, planet stories, that kind of stuff. And my father... Um, read a lot of uh, espionage literature, you know, um, that Robert Ludlum and that kind of stuff. And then one day I picked up, uh, he had a copy of The Big Sleep and it changed my life. So it was, for me, it was reading Raymond Chandler right. and realizing that um, a book like that could actually knock on the door of literature. It wasn't just uh, pulp stuff and it, uh, that definitely changed things for me. Um, so, literature and books were a huge part of my life 
primarily because after my father was killed in a in the car accident that I mentioned, um, you know, initially my mother came home and she was catatonic. She locked herself in her bedroom for a long time and all we would hear was screaming and crying on the other side of the door. Um, eventually though, she emerged from that state, prompted by the fact that my older brother, my eldest brother, um, who no longer had a father figure in his life, ended up getting kicked out of school. And so that was my mother's sort of wake up call and she was determined in that moment to make sure that we stayed focused on schoolwork, on academics, uh, to make sure that we were focused on anything besides the empty chair at the dinner table and our loss and our pain. And one of the first things she did to really get the family sort of back on track after such a massive loss, she describes it as an emotional earthquake, was that she started a family book club. That was the first thing that she did. And so um, I was very young at the time, but it was largely for my older brothers. And every Friday, they would have to spend the entire week reading one book a week and then discuss it at the dinner table every Friday. And so the books primarily ranged from the classics. It was for my older brothers to begin with. But, you know, she, she sort of made me read like board books and that kind of thing. But as I got older, I became a part of it too. And, um, you know, my favorite book from my childhood when I was sort of not a kid kid, but slightly older was Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart which is a brilliant book. And because I'm Nigerian, obviously there's, it's, it has such a special place in my soul. But by starting the fam family book club, um, we all developed a deep, deep love of literature. So that's how it started. After reading your book, I thought I need to start all over again <laughs> as a mother. <laughs> Just do whatever your mother did, that's what I should have been doing. Um, Karen, do you have a memory of a book well, I actually, instead of a memory of a book, of course, I'm going to focus on a memory of a play. Um, I would say that uh, when I was in college and I was already, as you heard, the role of one, deeply focused on theater, uh, the great director, Peter Brook, uh, had created a piece called The Eek, based on a tribe in Africa that, ha that were hunters and were uh, forced off their land by the government and were now systematically starving. And he took the anthropologist Colin Turnbull and they visited this tribe, they studied them, and they created a piece of theater called the Eek that was based on their survival experience. And watching Brooks' work, which really connects the past and the present, the spectator and the audience, um, reality and fantasy. Seeing this work up close and personal for the first time blew my mind. And I went back every night um, to see it again and again and again as long as it was there, as long as it was there. And that was, of course, when I realized that Peter Brook was doing a lot of his work in America at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. So it became my mission to work there so that I could be near this kind of creative spirit and, and amazing talent um, for, of this kind of artist. It's so incredible the full circle moments that so many of you have had, specifically in relationship to the books we're here to um, discuss and sell today. By the way, they're all available in the back. I've read every one of these books. They're extraordinary. Um, Tim, Zane, Karen, and Catherine, 
I think you all have pretty wonderful titles of your book, but I want to know if from like the genesis of you, the sort of story of you beginning this idea, was there a different title for all these books? Did the titles change when editors and publishers got involved? What was the original title? For any of you, is it the same title that's on the cover right now? So do you want it, Karen, why don't you start? Yes, um, well, uh, many of you who are New Yorkers may remember that uh, we did a campaign uh, for the 150th anniversary of BAM, which was in subways, it was in subway shelters, it was uh, on posters, it was everywhere. And that campaign was called BAM and Then It Hits You. And it was about great moments that you might have experienced in one of our theaters and then you reflecting on your own BAM moment, where did BAM hit you? So we had BAM and then it hit you all over the city. So I decided pretty much immediately that the title of my book would be BAM and then it hit me. <laughs> so it's perfect. And there it is. Yeah. Rule of one, decided on it, did it, and then it hit me. <laughs> so that's all I can say. What about you? Oh, me? Yes. Okay. Zane. Um, yeah, so the title of my book, I knew exactly what it was going to be because um, in the final chapter of my story, um, my mom, who obviously is a Nigerian immigrant, didn't grow up with much money, grew up in the middle of the Biafra War, um, gets invited actually to Buckingham Palace. And it's through my brother because um, he's been honored with an, what's called an OBE. So it's where the royal family give you sort of a, a, an honor for your contribution to whatever it may be, arts, culture, etc. And so my mom, who came to England in the 70s, obviously experienced some degree of racism, never felt that she fit in, never felt that she truly belonged, always felt isolated, now has a ticket in her hand to Buckingham Palace. And, um, you know, we all went that day and, um, you know, my mother was there crying as Prince Charles sort of pins the golden cross to my brother's lapel and they exchanged words. My mother is very, very emotional this day. And we all sort of leave and um, she's linking hands with my brother and she's crying and crying. And she looks back at Buckingham Palace and, you know, obviously the Queen's residence itself. And she turns to my brother and says, my goodness, you never know where your children will take you. And that's how the title came. Incredible, yeah. incredible. Tim? Uh, my <laughs> this title kind of surprised me because I didn't think of it until I said it out loud. Um, I, was, I attended a Brooklyn Nets game with uh, my publisher, with Johnny Temple from Akashic Books. And after the game, we stopped off for a couple of beers at a really, really cool bar that is unfortunately no longer there called Frank's. Uh, and <laughs> right next to BAM. Yes, right, right next to BAM, exactly. <laughs> Caleb skateboard, he, and, he skateboards there too, yeah. Um, <laughs> when, while we were chatting, I, I told him I was still working on the collection of short stories, and I said, it's probably going to take me forever, but... I said, I do, you know, if you put my stories and my essays together, I said they would make a pretty nice book, a nice short book, and they do have kind of a unifying theme. And he said, what would you say the theme is? And I just said, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And he said, I'll read that. <laughs> and that, was, that was it. So it, it never changed from that moment. I love it. Catherine? 
So I guess I'm the only one who has a changed title. <laughs> um, so my working title was the woman who broke the Iron Curtain. I was really excited because it um, had the double entendre of break. Um, and my publisher was concerned that nobody in the United States uh, knew their history very well. Um, and they tested um, with Google AdWords and the double life of Catherine Clark performed better. Um, and that's what we went with. So, um, you know, it, it really is a story about a woman who makes her way in a man's world. I mean, back in the 1950s, women did not work and they certainly didn't work as international correspondents. Um, and I think, um, you know, it, it's a struggle as an author in your relationship with your publisher, but ultimately all of us want to get our stories out and, and to get them sold. Um, so I did come around to the double life of Catherine Clark, but it was not um, my working title from the beginning like everybody else talked about. I do, <clears throat> pardon me, I do feel like in terms of honoring her legacy, having her name in the title is kind of incredible because her name for young girls everywhere she will be someone that they go, I, wanted, I want to aspire to be someone like Catherine Clark. So it's kind of a beautiful, beautiful testimony. Yeah, thank um, you. I would love in our last few minutes to open up questions. I have one million more if anyone's too shy, but I'm happy to open up questions to the audience if anyone would like to um, grab a microphone uh, or just use their best theater voices to ask a question of our esteemed panel. I guess this is a question for Karen. Um, I read your book and I started riding my bike to work. <laughs> Good girl, um, awesome. <laughs> uh, and I guess, I think for so many people, you truly personify BAM. I'm wondering like, if you were to do it all over again, is there another institution that would have been kind of a body for your work and for your career or um, is it all truly kind of you know <laughs> I think that the way it worked for me is that BAM was my palette in a way for my ideas and for the ideas of my colleagues artistic director Joe Melillo Harvey Lichtenstein my mentor and boss and then all the artists that rolled through so you learn as you go and I will say one thing, that being in a place for 36 years, I know it's extreme, but it takes at least almost like three to four years. I would encourage everyone to stay for a while. The first year is chaos. The second year, it's getting good. And the third year, you are on fire. And that's when your really great ideas uh, when you have the support of your, your board, your staff, your audience, your donors, that's when the great magic can really happen. So for me, I kind of, bam, hit me like right from the beginning and, and then I couldn't leave. And I couldn't leave because I would miss something that was happening the next season that I really wanted to be there for. So I think you can find this any place that becomes a palette uh, for your ideas uh, particularly when you have great and inspiring colleagues and a great team. Anyone else? I want to ask you guys, did you, everyone has a deadline if you're working with a publisher as opposed to writing something on spec, as it were. Did, did you feel finished when you handed it in? 
And anyone can just jump in and answer. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll answer. Um, so one of the rules that my mother taught us, because the book is basically a list of all the different sort of lessons that she gave us in order for us to be our best selves. One of the rules was um, uh, the eight-hour rule. My mother growing up would encourage each of us to divide our days into three parts each. So obviously there's 24 hours in a day. She would make us divide it into three parts each and she would say, right, eight hours to be spent sleeping, eight hours should be spent at school, and the last eight hours of your day should be spent working towards your dreams. And that was a rule that all, all of us, in order to sort of, you know, live up to the highest version of ourselves, lived by. And so even when I became an adult, the eight-hour rule, even to this day, has been gospel. It was instrumental, you know, in, in helping me get to CNN. It was instrumental also in writing this book. So when I wrote the book, I applied the eight-hour rule religiously. And uh, every single sort of time that I had after work, because my mother's point was, you know, everyone in the world generally sleeps for eight hours. Everyone in the world sort of generally is at work for approximately eight hours a day. So the only thing you have in your life to set you apart from the next person is how you spend the last eight hours of your day. So when it came time to writing the book, and obviously, you know, when you write a book, there's deadlines and um, it can be sort of really tricky to learn how to navigate your time. I really use the eight hour rule um, after work. And as a result, I finished my book because of it exactly on time. And so I felt, um, I felt that the book was done, you know, and I felt that it was finished and they were very happy with it. So, yeah. Well, I feel like I would like to spend those eight hours of the day that are mine with all of you. I am so unbelievably inspired by these books. I feel so lucky to have been asked to host this panel because it allowed me the luxury of spending time with each of you and your incredible, incredible books. And I thank you all for being here today. One more thing, I keep getting emails asking how to donate to the podcast. First of all, thank you in advance. You are the kindest humans. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. That is where you donate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts social media intern is Sophia Rosenbaum. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.